Welcome to our latest financial services podcast. Uh, my name is Darren Allen. I'm joined by my partner, Jonathan Crook, to talk about the FCA's new consumer duty and the new rules and non-handbook guidance that was now been issued by um, the FCA. Firms will be happy that we now finally have um, the final rules in place. And there, and there are actually no significant game changes. So for those firms that have been proactive in planning for the implementation of the consumer duty, they can continue to do so without having to make any radical changes. It is fair to say though, Jonathan, isn't it, uh, that the policy statement from the FCA has provided a couple of, su of surprises in relation to timing at least. Yeah, that's right, Darren. In relation to the implementation period generally, the good news is that the implementation has been extended. The bad news is that it's been extended by not very much. So in relation to new and existing products, the consumer duty will apply from the end of July 2023. So that's in relation to products or services that remain on sale or open for renewal. There is perhaps more positively, an extended timetable in relation to closed products. So the products that will not be offered for sale to new customers or will be available for renewal once the consumer duty has come into effect. And uh, the obligations in the relation to those products um, have been extended until uh, the end of July 2024. Probably the most significant change, though, is the FCA's proposals uh, and requirements, indeed, in relation to uh, an implementation plan, which is a requirement that boards or the equivalent management bodies need to have in place an implementation plan by the end of October 2022. And the purpose of that implementation plan is to demonstrate that boards have appropriately scrutinised and challenged the steps that need to be taken to ensure that their firm is going to be in a position to comply with the consumer duty and that's a that that was not something that was foreshadowed in the consultation paper and i think probably the reason for this particular requirement being introduced is because the FCA was perhaps concerned that certain firms or in certain sectors, the implications and requirements of the consumer duty were not fully understood or, or perhaps were not being taken as seriously as the, as the FCA expected them to be. So I think that that's the reason of that particular curveball. And it does, Darren, doesn't it impose quite significant increased obligations. It does. I mean, just going back to your point about the October day, it's interesting, isn't it? I think there was this tug of war between, on the one hand, the consumer uh, lobby groups who frankly wanted the consumer duty introduced almost immediately. And then the firms in the financial services sector that recognised that this, there, it, it would be a very significant task and wanted much more time to implement it. I think it's fair to say the consumer lobby groups won. The firms have been given a couple of extra months but the end of October deadline, it seems to me, is designed to ensure that firms get on with it and take steps um, so that um, when it comes to the July 2023 deadline, there's no excuse and they, and they have fully implemented it. I think that's right. I think that as well, when you look at the reaction from, from the financial service industry as a whole, when the consumer duty was first mooted, that... Um, certainly in the advice sector and those those firms which have advice permissions and work um, under COBS and who are subject to the, therefore, to the client best interest rule, the initial reaction was that the consumer duty was aimed at something else. 
if that was the impression that firms had at the time, then uh, it's certainly not the impression that they have now. I think the reality of the uh, the, the duty and the, the nature of the duty and its scope has dawned. But there were still reports back in the early part of the summer, which indicated that a large number of firms, particularly in the wealth sector, did not think that the consumer duty was going to have a material impact on their businesses. And yeah. I think now the realisation is that it, it categorically is going to have a very, very significant impact. Yeah. I mean, a lot of firms are, are ahead of the game. Um, so a lot of them have already um, looked at steps to take to implement the consumer duty. There are also many firms that have been waiting for these final rules and have done very little. There is now a huge amount for firms to do actually and be interesting to get your view on this Jonathan it seems to me that in order to prepare a, an, an, an implementation plan you know there needs to be uh, proper governance who is responsible who's going to be accountable for driving this project forward if you don't have that it won't get done senior management engagement um, you know and the tone from the top a proper audit trail to make sure that um, once, uh, you know, if the, if the FCA asks to see the implementation plan, that there's evidence that it, it's been uh, discussed by senior management board level and so on. A gap analysis uh, uh, undertaken to identify where the real issues lie um, so that you can then have a plan that seeks to address those, those issues. There is a huge amount to be done between now and the end of October. I think that's absolutely right. And when you look at what the FCA has said in relation to implementation plans, um, it has been explicit that it will expect firms to share those implementation plans with the FCA. Uh, so it will be requesting those, I anticipate, as soon as we get past October. In addition, it will require firms to provide underlying material in, in relation to board minutes and papers. and. The FCA has also said that firms can expect to be challenged on the contents of those plans. So I think the FCA is going to be astute to identify those plans which are rush jobs or which are a bit of window dressing on the part of firms because they're not in a position actually to meet the, the express requirements. So I think there's going to be real, real pressure there. But the other interesting um, uh, development as well is the FCA's expectations now in relation to a, a, a board champion yeah. there have been lots there are lots of champions that the fca requires in, in all sorts of areas and the fca has said that um, it expects firms to appoint a champion uh, so it's not actually a formal requirement but i think darren where the fca says it expects something you don't really have much choice but to comply with that oh, I, I absolutely agree i mean if you look at the at the tone you're right it doesn't it's, it's not it doesn't mandate uh, uh, the requirement for a champion but it seems to me really obvious that they expect um, senior management to be engaged and that there to be an individual, an, an independent non-executive director who is responsible for ensuring that consumer duties is, is discussed at a regular basis, it's reviewed and so on. That's all to do with changing the culture within firms to, to ensure that the tone from the top is, 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 is set at the, at the right level and it permeates through the entire organisation. I think that's right. And I think I know, Darren, that you when we've talked about this before, you've expressed the view that essentially this is all about culture. And I think you're absolutely right on that. And the FCA has made that very, very clear in the in particular in the non non handbook guidance, where it's been very, very explicit in terms of the expectations. So this is not merely about tone from the top. It's not merely about the right messages being communicated. It's about real meaningful accountability on the part of boards and senior management. 
Yeah, no, I entirely agree. I mean, one of the interesting things is that um, the the FCA has resisted calls to introduce a, a private right of action, although it has said um, that it will keep the possibility under review. What's your What's your view on that? Well, there was interesting the point in relation to the private cause of action because initially the FCA appeared to be moving in the direction of a of introducing a private right of action, and there was a lot of challenge in relation to that. The general position is that where a rule that is contained in the handbook is breached and it has an impact on customers, there is a statutory right of action, the ability to bring legal proceedings in relation to that breach where you can demonstrate that a loss has been suffered. The FCA has disapplied that in relation to the, the consumer duty. It does create a degree of asymmetry, which the FCA has acknowledged because if you take, for example, a breach of a rule under COBS, there would still be a private right of action mm. there. But if the same circumstances also give rise, and they almost inevitably will, I think, uh, give rise to a, a breach of the, of the consumer duty, you will not have the ability to bring court proceedings in relation to that. So what I think will happen my view is that pretty much everything that goes to false is going to be framed by reference to the consumer duty. Yeah. And the claims management companies must be rubbing their hands with glee because this is going to provide them with a number of opportunities to bring claims against firms. I think that's absolutely right. And my view is that certainly in the short term, whilst the FCA expects there to be reductions in complaints because firms will be acting in the right way at the outset, dealing with their customers in the right way, providing them with the appropriate information to make decisions, providing them with the appropriate customer support. I still think the reality is that because the consumer duty creates such a broad scope for complaints to be brought, that we are going to see a significant increase in complaints. And my concern is that some of those may end up being quite, quite frivolous complaints, quite speculative complaints as well. It's an example I've used before, which, which might seem a little bit extreme, but when you look at the rules, it's certainly not, not beyond the realms of possibility for a customer who incurs, for example, increased costs in trying to communicate with their firm, held on the phone, for example, for a couple of hours trying to get through to somebody to actually say that's a breach of the obligations under the consumer duty. I would like you, therefore, to reimburse me for the mobile phone charges that I incurred. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting, though, um, that when looking at the private right of action, there have been a number of changes which have, are being introduced in the latest uh, non-handbook guidance to, to help to replicate the benefits of a private right of action. So firms will need to be proactive and take action to rectify problems. Well, you'd expect that um, if, there were, if, the, if consumers aren't getting the, the right outcome, then you'd expect them to rectify it. But more importantly, firms must notify the FCA if they become aware of another firm in the distribution chain is not complying with the duty. So an obligation to blow the whistle on somebody who's who, who's not complying with the consumer duty. And then an obligation on firms to notify others in the, in the distribution chain if it thinks they have caused or contributed to harm to retail customers. This requirement to, um, to be open um, and to notify others where you consider yourself to have fallen short of the, of, of the requirements, it will be quite a challenge for many firms. I think it will be a challenge and I can also see a significant scope for, for disputes. Uh, because if you go back to the implementation period, there's the obligation on the part of manufacturers by the end of April 2023 to effectively bring their products and services, their business book, as it were, 
into line with the consumer duty and to share that information with distributors. Now, if you take an example such as price and value, if a manufacturer considers that actually in order to comply with the consumer duty, there need to be adjustments to the pricing of a particular product, which then flows through into the distribution channel and which potentially requires quite significant changes to existing contractual arrangements. I think there's plenty of scope for distributors to say, actually, the course of action that you've decided to take as a manufacturer is not actually something that is required by the the consumer duty. I think we will see um, we, we, we will see challenges there, but you're absolutely right, Darren, that there is a th- this obligation to effectively report to the FCA what you regard as non-compliant behaviour by others in the distribution chain creates a significant danger of quite substantial disputes yeah. arising. Yeah, I agree. Now, now in, in terms of um, big challenges, I'm not entirely sure that the final rules or the non-handbook guidance changes um, what I perceive in any event to be the big challenges. I've always thought that price and value and demonstrating that the firm has acted reasonably is, is going to be a huge challenge for firms. Providing sufficient MI in a, um, an appropriate manner to um, senior management, monitoring and staff training and awareness. I mean, I think all those are really big challenges to achieve the kind of cultural change that needs to be taken. That's right. And I think where the pressure points in terms of compliance with the with the outcomes are going to be will very much vary according to firms. I think when you look at the price and value and the price and value assessments, the way in those in which those are addressed or looked at in the context of, if you like, more mass market products, um, where pricing tends to be consistent and tends to be pretty transparent, then those obligations perhaps aren't going to be too great. The greater pressures might be then there in relation to consumer understanding and consumer support. So in relation to that particular area, the wealth sector, the price and value outcome, I think, is going to create some very substantial challenges. And I don't think that there's many firms at the moment who have actually worked out what the exact outcome is going to be for them. But it's certainly something that the FCA will be looking at very, very carefully. It will, will be scrutinising the, the the price and value assessments that firms have actually undertaken and re- will really be testing those. I mean, I was... I was quite pleased to see that there was a bit more guidance in relation to to monitoring, uh, and in particular, um, the FCA has now given more guidance in the handbook on types of data information firms could use, and so they talk about business persistence and behaviour insights and training and competence records, file reviews, customer feedback. There's lots of lots of actually really quite useful information in there or, or, or useful guidance on the type of data which can be used by firms to monitor compliance. I do see monitoring as a real challenge, but I thought that was actually quite helpful for me. I, 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 th- I think it was, and, and I think that as a whole, the non-handbook guidance is you may disagree with the there may be disagreements in terms of the overall approach that the FCA has adopted in relation to consumer duty and there are certainly many people who are very critical of of it as a concept but in terms of the FCA articulating what its objectives are and what are the standards that it expects firms to meet then the non-handbook guidance is I have to say very very helpful in that regard but you do need to look into look at it in detail because there are some points that are perhaps hidden away in there but which 
indicate the way in, in which matters might develop. So if you look at MI, for example, there is one of the areas of MI that uh, the, the uh, FCA refers to is the ability of employees, of staff, to give honest feedback as to whether a particular product or so service is actually meeting, achieving good consumer outcomes. Now, if you overlay that as well with the new requirements, the new conduct rule requirements and the new COCON 6, which imposes a, an individual obligation to achieve good outcomes for customers, there is, I suspect, a real potential for what might be regarded as heightened whistleblowing yeah. in relation to what is regarded as non-compliant behaviour. So on the one hand, you may be getting useful MI from staff, but on the other hand, uh, you may also be inadvertently encouraging staff to, and potentially disgruntled employees, to raise concerns which actually are not in fact legitimate. Well, there's, there's a huge amount to be done, isn't there? Um, in terms of uh, ensuring compliance with the consumer duty, I mean, many firms have embarked upon this process already, but they're looking, you know, the, the uh, approach should be to initially have a governance framework to identify who is re responsible for delivery and who will be accountable, identifying relevant products and services, identifying relevant procedures, so complaints, processes, and so on, undertaking that gap analysis, which we discussed earlier, and creating a, a, a compliant culture. So that's the, the consumer duty champion, uh, uh, rolling out of procedures, training, looking at performance and appraisal programs, I think it's gonna be quite important as well, and making sure that they are aligned with the consumer duty. And then finalizing, obtaining sign-off of the implementation plan by October, 2022. So there's a lot to be done um, between now and the end of October and then and beyond. Um, and, and, and although the FCA has indicated in guidance that they would like people to be ahead of time, I suspect people are going to be right up against it in terms of trying to make that July deadline. I think that's absolutely right. And hopefully the FCA is going to be realistic. It's given further guidance in terms of expecting firms to prioritise those areas where they consider the greatest risks to be. And therefore, one would hope that the FCA will also take a proportionate approach in relation to those areas which might need further work or might need to be looked at more closely or where issues arise in relation to the need to redocument contractual relationships, yeah. which may well be an issue. One hopes that the FCA are going to be realistic in relation to that. Uh, it does expect firms to be in a position to explain to the FCA where exactly they are and if they are not going to be in a position to comply with the with the requirements of the duty by the relevant deadlines, then there is an obligation to inform the FCA of that. I guess time will tell as to what the level of reasonableness is that we are going to see on the part of the FCA. But I think if firms are taking good faith steps to ensure compliance, and we're talking in terms of delays being in weeks rather than months, then I would hope that there isn't going to be much of an issue there. I think it's for those firms who will be the most exposed will be those who have not really taken, yeah. uh, embraced the concept as a whole. It's going to be an interesting process. I mean, you and I have both been involved in change programs in the past, and there are no right or wrong answers sometimes. Sometimes it's a matter of sitting down and debating, and different stakeholders will have different views legitimately held about whether something provides a good enough outcome or not. And that whole process, actually, is going to take a huge amount of time. It is going to take time, and it's going to need to be carefully managed as well because... 
there, as you say, there is a lot of room for debate as to what the requirements are in a given instance in relation to a particular product or service or whatever. And there were the scope, therefore, for very significant differences of opinion within a firm as to what actually the, the consumer duty requires. This is going to sound like a naked plug to involve external lawyers, but there is an issue in relation to making sure that you utilise uh, the benefits of legal professional privilege, where there needs to be a debate within an organisation as to what actually the rules require. The benefit of prof legal professional privilege, of course, is that you can have that debate. That's what the rule is there for. You can have the debate, you can obtain advice, but advice is not limited to legal advice. It's, it can cover advice as to how to deal with a particular situation in a given context. But if you've got an in-house legal team, then make sure that they are fully, the firm should be making sure that they are fully fully plugged into the process, that this isn't seen as purely a compliance issue or purely a business issue. If you've got that resource, make sure that you use it so that uh, that, that, um, that that internal dialogue can be can be facilitated. I, I, I entirely agree. Look, I think that's, um, that's our time up. There's a huge amount for firms to do. I know a lot of them are, are getting on and doing it. Time is of the essence. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be a busy time between now and uh, well, now and the end of October and then up until July 2023. Um, Jonathan, thank you very much for your thoughts. I hope that this podcast has been helpful to those listening. If you'd like to discuss any matters raised during the course of this podcast, please um, drop me a line at darren.allen at shoesmiss.co.uk. Thanks, Darren.